Uh, well, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the end of that chapter. We'll read just into chapter 3. I began with a rather uh, exciting, even lurid story about uh, spiritual warfare. I, I'm sure uh, I would have your attention much more if I spent the rest of the time speaking about such, such stories. Uh, the truth is, the apostle here in the passage before us is uh, very sane, very serious, uh, dealing with principles, and that's what we're going to be doing this evening. I'm not going to be uh, giving you a, a bunch of uh, nightmares tonight, I hope, but uh, I would like to speak to you about the power of the devil and about the victory that we may yet win over him. So from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me pick up reading at verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before that when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate, as the song says, we desire that we should not be unaware of his schemes. We pray that you would give us a courage in the Lord and uh, a wisdom that we might be able to uh, counter the wiles of the devil and to uh, maintain our faith, live, living godly in Christ Jesus. We pray that in uh, such a time as this, when the battle rages, although in a, in a very subtle way, yet no less powerfully and really, that we would be wise and you would teach us through your word tonight. Christ's sake, amen. We were privileged to have uh, for, uh, for some time a young man in our basement living there named Lewis Christ. If anybody was ever meant to go into the military, it seemed like it was him. From the time that he was just a young boy, he uh, loved to, to play, uh, play army. Uh, he had all the paintball stuff and equipment and, uh, and the, the get up. He played endless war video games downstairs. He was in the Corps of Cadets. He was in ROTC. Uh, he, he, he loved the exercises. He, he loved the action. And I remember very clearly when he wrote back his first letter about having his first, first tour in Afghanistan, the great difference, he said, between play fighting and actually having somebody firing automatic weapons at you while you'd run into a ditch. He says it's actually a very, very different experience. If you're on a battlefield, matters of life and death suddenly appear very clear to be what they are, in fact. I mean, everything else, your needs, your desires, your money, taxes, career, prospects, relationships, all the rest, 
appear to be of secondary importance when you are dealing with matters of life and death. In a real battle, things become clear. Similarly, as we said earlier, if the devil and his powers indeed are real, which they are, then this world is a matter of great life and death consequence, and we need to take it much more seriously as a result. If the devil is in fact real, then your life and the life of every other person in this world is part of a great, desperate struggle, a kind of cosmic warfare between two kingdoms, and to the victor belong everlasting spoils. Now, any soldier who's been in hot combat will tell you again, there's this great difference between practice and the real thing, when enemies are trying to kill you and are, in fact, killing people around you. And this chapter that's before us, this portion I read, reminds us of this spiritual war, which, as I said this morning, engulfs everyone here. The dominion of darkness extends far and wide in this world, and the devil does have a great general influence in the world. Uh, he, he's called in the Bible the ruler of this world and the one who has led us into this fall and into the sin and misery, death, through his deception and temptation. But we're not coming this evening to, to hear again about the general influence of the devil in this world, his, the big works he's doing. We're coming this evening to consider your life and your experience in this world and what the Bible teaches you about spiritual warfare and your part in it. Now here in this passage I, I read to you, uh, Paul's interest is not actually a uncovering spiritual warfare. He speaks at greater length of that elsewhere. He's, he's actually talking about his, the great desire that he had to see the Thessalonians again. And uh, then in chapter 3, uh, how he sent Timothy to them in the meantime to strengthen them and then to find out how they were. So now the apostle, in, in this, just in the course of this explanation, makes two extraordinary statements which we will consider this evening. The first is in verse 18 where he said that uh, in all of his efforts to, to try to return to Thessalonica, he was thwarted by Satan. And second, at the end of our reading, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says to the effect that he was greatly concerned that Satan might have undone all the work that Paul had begun there. The apostle Paul uh, knew that he had a great adversary, an enemy to contend with, personally and in his work, an enemy that was far more powerful and more dangerous than those hateful Jews that had opposed him in the city, than the Roman government that had uh, given him a, thr a thrashing before throwing him out. And uh, this enemy that could not be seen or heard could at least be overcome. And I'd like to tell you something about that. Let's consider these basically two verses before us under two headings. Number one, the devil is a being of great power and sinister schemes. And number two, the devil's power is limited and able to be overcome. That's my sermon tonight. Number one, the devil is a being of great power and sinister schemes. Again, chapter 2, verse 18. We wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. It's a remarkable statement. Satan hindered us from a man who says that the gospel that he preached is the power of God and that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him and that he is more than a conqueror through Christ who loved him and on and on. 
Here's the same Paul, this master of the doctrine of divine sovereignty, who knows that there is nothing that is outside the command and will of his God. But he says, in fact, the devil had stopped him time and again, thus preventing him from bringing any help to these Thessalonian believers. Well, you want to know, okay, what, what does he mean Satan hindered him? Um, I'm sorry, can't say for sure. Some point to the continuing Jewish opposition that was in Thessalonica that made it uh, made him have to leave in the first place, made it impossible for him to return. Others say, oh, it's probably the, the Roman government there that put Jason under bond and then had a threat of severe penalty so that this prominent new Christian would suffer if Paul returned. Uh, and others say, no, pr probably Paul's referring to his own troubles that his companions were experiencing in Corinth, where he's writing this letter from, that the, the, the troubles there were so bad he couldn't leave and uh, couldn't help Thessalonica, um, another one says, oh, probably just the messenger of Satan, that thorn in the flesh Paul describes in his letter to the Corinthians. Well, I don't know. Could be all those things. The fact is, it's all speculation. I think any of those things could be what Paul is talking about or maybe something else. The, fact, the simple fact is, nobody knows what Paul means because he didn't say. But the point is, Whatever the circumstance or events or illness or something else that prevented Paul returning time and again to Thessalonica, Paul knew that somehow he knew behind these things lay the master hand of the devil. Okay, we don't know what it was, but the second question you might want to know is now, like, how did he know it was Satan's work? We don't know that either. Uh, Paul has a couple of advantages. We don't. As an apostle, the Lord was often revealing things to him, even appearing to him from time to time, and that might have been it. It's an interesting question whether we could actually tell whether some particular temptation or struggle that we are having, is the, is the devil personally involved or one of his demons personally involved in that? Um, don't quite know the answer to that, too. You, you might know that some of the people that I quote to you the most uh, Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, Martin Luther, others have written about experiencing an onslaught of temptation and evil, even sometimes blasphemous thoughts that they attributed to the devil. But, but how they knew that, I don't know. Um, except that maybe it came out of nowhere, so they thought maybe since it's just all of a sudden from nowhere, it must be diabolical. Uh, once the free church missionary John Rabbi Duncan was asked if the tempting of Satan could possibly be distinguished from our own fallen desires and in his often eccentric way he uh, he said yes yes I've caught him at it I've caught him at it but he never explained so uh, my point is some of the spiritual masters of the practice of godliness have described it happening and some of them have even sought over the years to discern the signs that indicate the devil's own hand in the circumstances of our lives, but I frankly don't know how successful they've been. All I can say to these questions that we all want to know is, I, I don't know. We need to stick with what's here because this is written for our instruction and this much we know for sure. In addition to hindering and uh, potentially undoing the work of God, which is what Paul was writing about, right? You're, Satan hindered my, my return to help you and then potentially was going to undo the work that I had done. As we see in this passage, 
there, there, there are very common things that we do find chapter after chapter that are described as diabolical attacks. Do I say these things have to be diabolical? No. But what I'm saying is these are the things that the Bible describes as at least we might say potential spiritual attacks. Number one, increased temptation and evil desire. Increased temptation and evil desire. Unlike people who could only speak evil things into our ears. Evil spirits somehow can insinuate thoughts into our hearts and minds. We, write, we read, for example, in John 13, how the devil had put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him. Or again, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Or again, Ananias, how has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The devil, as we read this morning, is the one who works in the sons of disobedience and the one who tempts saints to do just the same. Your weakness, your particular liability to temptation, he knows. Paul, elsewhere, for example, urges husbands and wives not to neglect the affection that are due one another. Do not deprive one another, he writes, except with consent for a time, so that you can give yourself to fasting and prayer, then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you. In other words, the devil knows just where you or your spouse is weak and win. And when you find yourself already in such a weakened state, you're on his radar. It was when Jesus was himself fasting, famished, physically weakened, that the enemy came upon him in the wilderness increased temptation and evil desire is often spoken of as a work of his hand. Second, increase anger and disunity, right? Outbursts of rage. Paul writes to the Ephesians, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. Because you see, the devil is able to leverage that anger and bitterness and resentment in you with devastating effect in your life, in your family, in your church. Satan loves disunity. God intends, we read also in Ephesians, that his manifold wisdom might be known to the church, in the church, by the principalities and powers. And so the devil especially likes to draw the church away and to destroy the Lord's work among us. Corporately, he wants to steal our peace, quench our zeal, shut off the light of God's love and goodness and grace among us so that the Corinthian church was in danger of becoming ungracious and unforgiving. There was a repentant sinner, a repentant brother. And Paul says, look, if you forgive anyone, I forgive him, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. An ungracious, hard-hearted, unforgiving church is not of God. Beware the increased anger and disunity that can bring down even the church of God. Third, overwhelming misery and despair, overwhelming misery and despair. Just as the devil knows how to take advantage of your natural weakness in temptation, as I said earlier, he knows how to cause that weakness as well. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, which he calls that messenger of Satan to torment or buffet him, lest he be exalted above measure. Paul writes how your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
sufferings, that's his business. We see in Job's case how the devil has power to afflict us, if the Lord permits, both body and soul to make us so miserable that we want to die, that we feel completely overwhelmed. In both physical and mental health, we might say Job was left practically despairing of hope. He had no idea what was going on. He didn't understand. Jesus says that that enemy of your souls comes to kill, uh, steal and kill and destroy. And Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning, is happy to lead people into such a state as to contemplate taking their own lives or making other very self-destructive choices that take that life more slowly, perhaps. And even when people are resisting such urges, it often leaves them racked with guilt or despair or doubt. Uh, with, with Judas, first he had him betray Jesus to death. And then when he was done with him, he had him kill himself. That's the handiwork of the devil. The fourth, uh, false doctrine and religion. Here it is here in chapter 3, verse 5. Again, Peter, uh, Paul describes his fear that Satan might have undone the work that Paul had done in planting the church in Thessalonica among the believers. But he was anxious that they had maybe departed from Christ, that the tempter had tempted them in all their troubles and tribulations. Well, that is the devil's work. And so, as I mentioned this morning, one of the common references in the Bible to the devil's work is of unbelief, false belief, uh, leading us to believe lies. Paul warns about people in the church who are going to give heed Quote, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, that he mentions all kinds of unbiblical traditions and things, uh, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods that God has received with thanksgiving, and, and so forth. Things you might think are like, just weird errors, but uh, the truth is that that's the, that's the devil putting false teaching and doctrine into his pure church, into the Lord's pure church. Uh, Micaiah has to tell the king, you know, the prophets of Baal are being misled by a deceiving spirit. I've seen it all. All the way back in the law of Moses, the Lord talks about those people coming out of Egypt that have been worshiping not idols, but demons, offering their sacrifices to demons. And we sang about it in Psalm 106. Israel comes into the land of Canaan, offering their very children to idols, quote, to demons, not to God. Deuteronomy 32. And so in addition to hindering and undoing the work of God, as we read here in Thessalonica, there are these other things that Paul writes about elsewhere as the work of the devil, increased temptation, evil desire, increased anger, disunity, overwhelming misery and despair, false doctrine, and false religion. Now you say, what about those exciting things in the book of Acts where there's like, casting out demons. Like, what about that? Well, we do find in the Gospels and in the book of Acts what's translated as uh, demon possession or uh, literally demonizing of people so that uh, evil spirits even speak through the voices of men whom they inhabit or something. And uh, these devils must be uh, exercised, literally cast out well, what about that? Well, uh, there's virtually, I have to say, first of all, there's nothing, virtually nothing at least, found to this in the Old Testament or in the epistles or in Revelation. So on the one hand, I will say, some people have said, speculating, that, you know, maybe God allowed such dramatic manifestations of evil to inhabit men for a time 
during the coming of his own son so that Christ's supernatural power and that of his apostles would be visibly manifest to the world. Follow that? Maybe it was just for a time. However, I think we can also say that uh, some of us have read enough stories from missionaries at least to uh, uh, doubt that conclusion. Certainly the early church reported various power encounters with demonic beings, but they showed no fear of confronting it in Jesus' name. Closer to our own time, you might know the name uh, John Nevius, graduated Princeton under the Hodges, uh, great missionary pioneer out to the Far East. He, he went first to China, then to South Korea. His work is still uh, flourishing all these years later. It, he was, uh, a lot of people know Hudson Taylor, they don't know Nevius, but the, the truth is over the long term, I think Nevius has probably had uh, more of an effect on, on South Asian missions. My point is, he graduated from Princeton Seminary, he, he never had any expectation of meeting anything like this. He goes to China, this is what he meets. Uh, he records a whole bunch of other testimonies from other missionaries in China, in the Far East. He writes a whole book, and if you, you want to be kept up with nightmares, uh, you can read his book on the power of, of evil in the Far East. In any case, there's a great difference between our experience here, at least, day to day, and the experience in the Holy Land in the first century, where for whatever reason, for this time, evil spirits were openly and in great force out and about speaking uh, when the Messiah came. Um, so on the one hand, I don't want to say that, that that's normative. On the other hand, I don't want to say that's totally out. We can say for certain, at least, that the scripture declares the powers of darkness to be great. The devil, devil is called still the ruler of this world, even if he's being cast out. And his power is exercised with terrible craft and subtlety. He himself uh, comes as an angel of light, hiding his maleficent, malevolent purposes and hatred for God behind arguments that sound to us to be very reasonable and attractive. Jesus, for instance, told the Pharisees that they were doing the will of their father, the devil. The desires of your father, you desire to do. But they, of course, thought themselves servants of God, students of Moses. Well, perhaps the greatest danger is that Satan's power is so subtle and inscrutable to us. We don't know how it operates, how it captures our minds, how it affects people, and that makes it all the more dangerous because it's so easy to miss or discount. His hand is invisible. But though we can't see his working, the Bible says we can be aware of his schemes and overcome them. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. His craft and power are great. But, but even though he was able to frustrate the purposes of the apostle here in the passage, he can do many things against us as well. I have a second point for you that is shorter. The devil's power is limited and able to be overcome. Coming now to the second reference in the passage before us. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I set to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Paul, you remember, was thrown out of the city. He was compelled to leave after just three Sabbath days. A, a fledgling church was left and uh, he left in a great tumult, uh, and persecutions came, came upon them.
for at least several more months in, in Thessalonica. Uh, a few of his companions tried to stay behind a little longer, and at last this fledgling church had to be left on its own, and Paul wanted to return again and again, but he couldn't. Again and again, he wanted his, one of his companions to go. Satan hindered them too. But he persevered, and at last he was able to send Timothy to, 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 to give them some, some encouragement and maybe to see whether the tempter had destroyed the work of Christ in Thessalonica. Uh, again, a remarkable statement. The same Paul who says, you know, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The same Paul is in danger, knows the danger. It is possible that the devil would have undone everything in this city. His craft and his power are great. But Satan, though he temporarily stopped Paul, could not ultimately be successful in this world. Jesus has bigger plans. The devil ha may have his day, but Paul did not give up. He persevered. He sought out some way to get the best of the devil, and at last he found it. Because he who was in Paul was greater than he who was in the world. And so um, he was able at last to send Timothy. Timothy was able not only to minister to them, but to bring back some very good news. The Lord had preserved his people in Thessalonica, despite their miseries. Now, the devil's craft and power are great, but it's exercised in a very particular way most of the time. His primary weapon against us is named here to deceive you, to deceive your soul, to tempt your soul away from God. He has the power to seduce you, though not the power to force you or compel you. Resist the devil, write James, and he will flee from you. We can resist. And therefore, even if Satan himself is involved in a temptation... The Bible never regards that as lessening our guilt or reducing our responsibility if we succumb. In other words, Christians, we can't say the devil made me do it. And the temptation of Christ himself is very helpful in this way. At this point of weakness, three times the devil is tempting Jesus. And three times the Lord rebuffs that deceptive temptation as a man, replying with the truth of God, it is written. Satan is not almighty. His power is limited by God himself. He is not omniscient or omnipresent. And weak as we are, with the word of God, the power of God, the spirit of God, we can overcome. We can discern his wiles and devices, expose his lies, answer his temptations with the word of God, and face him down in our moment of decision. We are given an insight into some dramatic confrontations in the Gospels or Acts to show us just how terrible and powerful these forces are. Um, I, and, you know, I, I expect if, I, if I'm ever faced with such a situation, uh, having to cast out an evil spirit or something, I, I, I hope and expect I will be able to do so by the name and the power of Jesus, which is mighty. But as I mentioned earlier, in Paul's letters and the rest of the Bible, we are taught other things. We're taught what you might call the more ordinary kind of spiritual warfare, the things you have to face every day. Things that we're much more comfortable with. Things that we know we are able to gain the victory with. Let me give you four practical points here, also from Paul's letters. 
Number one, we are called to be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord, he writes, and the power of his might. You trying to do it yourself? You trusting in yourself? You think that you're more powerful than the devil on your own? Peter needed to learn this lesson. Peter was boasting. Hey, though everybody else deny you, I'm not going to deny you. He said that he would remain, though everyone else desert Christ. The Lord allowed Satan to sift Peter that night, as he put it himself, that he might not trust in himself, but in Christ alone. Jesus says, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can defeat the devil and all the powers arrayed against us if he is our strength. We will enjoy the liberty and the victory of the children of God. We will have holy and fruitful lives in spite of the temptation and opposition of the evil one when, and only when, we really, decidedly, purposefully, intentionally, and thoroughly abide in Christ. He is our hope. Let's watch and pray, being strong in the Lord. That's what we are told again and again, and that is the first and probably the most important thing in our spiritual warfare. Second, we are told to put on the whole armor of God. Uh, I told you four practical points. I forgot later. It's already getting long. I, I cut it down to two. So two it will be. Sorry. Uh, number two, we must put on the whole armor of God. We sang about that this morning. Uh, Paul writes here in chapter 5, verse 8. Thess 1 Thessalonians 5, verse uh, 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ and so forth. He writes similarly, of course, to the Ephesians, though the list is a little different. He says you've got to put on truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and faith and salvation and take up the word of God as the sword of the Spirit. Uh, the point, uh, the, the list is a little different. The point is not necessarily which armor corresponds to which virtue, but simply that God has provided us a more than adequate defense against all that the devil can do. We must daily put on the shield of faith, faith that holds the promise of God in one hand and Jesus in the other and says, I don't know how I'm going to do it, Lord, but I'm going forth. We need to put on truth, he says, to oppose hypocrisy and error. We need to put on righteousness as a breastplate, reproving the unfruitful works. We can't be dabbling in sin and hoping to stand in the evil day. We need to put on the gospel of peace, which makes us one, as opposed to the satanic divisions, the outbursts of wrath, and the other things that he's warned us about. We need to put on faith, which gives us boldness and courage and confidence in God. We need to put on salvation, which assures us that we have peace with God, and we are heirs of an eternal kingdom that can't be taken away from us. And when we put on all these things, then we can stand in the evil day. These are the things that God has provided. And so, in conclusion, there's not a sin or a temptation that bedevils you that you cannot, by the power, word, and spirit of Christ, put to death using those weapons that the gospel furnishes. There is not a suggestion that the devil has ever planted in your mind for which the gospel does not have a utterly decisive and satisfying answer. What assaults are you facing? 
Satan bringing against you great, great temptations, threaten to bring you down, you tremble. You say, well, how am I going to resist this? You put on the armor of God. It's written, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to stand up under it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is our confidence. Maybe the devil's scheme is to make you more and more miserable and isolated, you know, and nobody knows what you're going through, and oh, you're so alone, and it's just so hard. Well, put on the armor of God. What has he said? I will never leave you nor forsake you. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Maybe the devil is making you afraid of persecution or of the opposition of others. And you think, well, what's going to happen to me? Well, put on the armor of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, as it's written. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So when the devil tempts you with a desire to grow complacent, lazy, put on the armor of God. We also, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. When Satan insinuates into your heart the fear of death, you put on the armor of God. Quote, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. On and on it goes. I tell you, no matter the problem, no matter the affliction, no matter the temptation, no matter the scheme that Satan tries upon you, victory is available to every Christian. With the temptation, the Lord will provide the way of escape. You may feel overwhelmed and defeated. You may feel extremely discouraged, but in every assault, in every trial, here is our cry of victory. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now there's this last great work of Satan that I spoke about this morning and I'm going to finish with tonight. The fact that every single person in this room is in one of two kingdoms, either under the power of darkness or has been delivered into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, even Jesus. Where do you stand this very evening? I have spoken about the terrible power of the devil in the most uh, unusual of uh, ways and in the most ordinary of ways, as he just likes to have people, generally speaking, coast their way to hell. Now, dear friends, there is in this power of Christ available to you this very day a more than adequate answer to all that the devil has done in your life, all that he can do, all that he will do. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Can you say that about yourself? If not, I have one more verse for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is the power of God unto salvation. And all that the world and the flesh and the devil can do cannot outdo the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. In fact, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Ending again with that familiar refrain, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Sorry. 
uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let that be our united prayer. Let's conclude tonight, tonight with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father...